millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. So last week we started our first episode of our season on fatigue and we discussed some of the details regarding fatigue and how it happens and some of the molecular and physiological processes that happen for fatigue and we kind of broke down what fatigue really was and whether it was mind versus body etc etc so if you need to know more about that um, you can go back to that podcast which is the one happening before that we the one we put up now um, but uh, we'll top we'll, we'll probably go on to some of the aspects that we discussed last week in the fatigue podcast uh, because today we're going to talk a little bit about fatigue resistance and whether it is a term that is a newfangled modern term for fatigue or whether it's something that's just been rehashed and has always been around so uh, Ross and I are going to get into that in a few moments but uh, before we get into that fatigue main subject so we've got some court my eyes and mm-hmm. uh, for those of you that are new to the podcast and um, we have a patreon support group our patrons on patreon if you need to know where to find us you go to patreon.com and look for science of sport podcast and we have a very active uh, membership of our patreon uh, groups and uh, it's a chance for people on patreon to ask us questions to uh, raise things that they've seen on in the science in the sports science realm and then to raise it with ross who often sends an email out responds on patreon itself <coughs> and we get a chance to discuss some of them in our podcast we don't get all to them all unfortunately because there are a lot of them out there and uh, we don't get to them as we as much as we hope but hopefully we'll get to a few more today so ross kick us off for some of the ones we've got this week yeah actually this week a hat trick from gareth d who sent in actually over the course of the last two weeks i didn't get to this one last week because there were so many but i've put it over and then two new ones and uh, I must say, like he said, I'm sorry for sending so many in. You shouldn't be because it's awesome. I would miss literally 90% of these. There's one today that I would have picked up, but the others I'd have missed because uh, it's just difficult to keep track. But somehow he keeps sending these really stimulating articles in. And the first one was actually something that was released via Zwift. That's the software that allows you to join a virtual cycling world. I think it really mm. took off big time during COVID. And this particular article was published at the beginning of this month, and it is basically a call for research participants in a remote cycling study. So it begins here saying, fellow Zwifters, we need your help for a research study that may unlock automatic FTP detection by only wearing a heart rate monitor that records heart rate variability. So FTP, functional threshold power, it's quite an important metric to understand your your training status and your performance capabilities. And what they're basically looking for is volunteers who will sign up and then share with them data, particularly heart rate data, that is recorded during four exercise sessions. There's a four-minute time trial, two 20-minute time trials, and one Zwift race. A couple of surveys that need to be done on, on cycling experience and your exercise sessions. And then provided you've got a compatible watch, they can harvest effectively your heart rate variability data from those cycling sessions. 
And then very interestingly, they're working on this concept that there are fractal properties in heart rate variability. Explain what ever, fractal is. Have you, looked at a, have you ever seen those animations of either a snowflake or a coastline? Mm. And as you zoom in, the pattern stays the same, irrespective of how closely you look at it. Have you seen those? Yeah, yeah. That's fractals. So, right. Similarly, if you look at a tree branch, the, the branch has the same shape as the tree. And then the branches off the branches have the same shape as the branch, hence the tree. And so it's just these repeating patterns. And the theory is that these almost never-ending patterns have some physiological significance. So the, the heartbeat, for instance, exhibits fractal structures. And so they reckon by exploring that, they'll have a unique way of evaluating human performance. Way so back- in other words, what they're saying is if you wear a heart rate monitor that is compatible and you're part of this test, you don't need to do an FTP test for them then to tell you what your FTP is. Well, that's what they're going to explore, I presume. So that's it's, why- it's, it's much like kind of what Strava does to some extent based on what the hills you go up and the speed that you go up and the heart rate that you display on your, heart, on your, on your thing. But it's a, it's a rough- yeah, well, Strava, Estimate, isn't it? Strava gets FTP from power, like it's direct. You've got to measure power to no power. Yeah. What they reckon they'll get is, as you say, it's an indirect measure using the heart rate variability. And so that's why you'll do two 20-minute time trials, and that's effectively going to give them your literal yeah. FTP. But you can do that on Strava and on, on Zwift now anyway, can't you? you exactly. Can go in there exactly. and do an FTP not, test. They're not the most fun you'll have in 20 minutes on a bike, <laughs> but but yeah, that's you could do well, that. Well, there's the hour one you can do, which is even <laughs> less fun. Three, less fun. One, one third the fun, three times the duration. <laughs> um, and then and then a Zwift race. So I assume what's going to happen is they'll use the heart rate during the race and they'll assess the variability and then they'll have some predictive model algorithm that says, okay, based on what we've seen, your power heart rate here, this is your FTP, and yeah. then they'll compare it to your actual FTP, and then be able CIP. to say, okay, in future, you can get an FTP without doing an FTP. So in other words, they'll create an algorithm that puts all those things together and helps you. So yeah. in other words, you don't have to potentially do the 20-minute pain test to Ex- find out your FTP. Exactly. Okay. So it's interesting. And also they'll confirm, they'll confirm this fractal thing. So I think why it's interesting, and this is the point Gareth raised when he sent it in, is that with tech, the opportunities, and actually this is a theme we will discuss in our main feature of this podcast also, technology has created the opportunity to get massive volumes of data. I mean, when I, like I sound like an old man, when I, in my day, <laughs> this was 20 years ago, when I was doing studies, we'd have to You're get- You're only 20 then. Yeah, that's true. We'd have to get- <laughs> Thanks. We'd have to get 15 participants to come into the lab on four occasions and then we'd measure stuff and that stuff would live on a computer and it was 500 data points for instance, per, per guy, if that's a big one, you know what I mean? Like, mm. And then you'd mine that data and you'd, now there's opportunities to get literally millions of data points. Remember after COVID, similar thing happened where people were uploading their Fitbit data because mm. that's just what they did. And some researchers said, here's an opportunity and we'll get that Fitbit data. And if we know that you had COVID, we're going to track how long did it take you to get back to your exercise routine, your step count per day, your sleep qualities and so on. And that was really interesting data just mined mm. that way. I, I saw the same thing happened in using Strava data and the New York Marathon and shoe type. Remember when the, mm. well, it's still going on, the debates about the shoes, they worked out some researchers based on hundreds of thousands of participants in marathons around the world that the shoes were worth X, Y percent. I forget the numbers. I don't want to yeah. get it wrong. But this opportunity exists. And it's, it's really interesting because I think if I was now 
able to go, well, wouldn't, if going back in time would be worthless. But if, if I met a 20-year-old self today who was weighing up what to study, I would not go into sports science without learning something about big data management and yeah. IT. Because a lot of seems, your job involves that at World Rugby, doesn't it? It's yeah, and I'm, and I'm massively underpowered when it mm. comes to some of the data. That's why, in fact, in World Rugby now, we're working with big data management companies to create mm. data lakes that we can set up and then mine in future and try and relate mouth guard data to injury data to playing time data and so on. Because you've got, like, the name of the game now is how effectively can you collect and then analyze and find meaning in massive, massive data sets. Yeah. Artificial intelligence is taking over a lot of the analysis that gets done. So I would not want to be a young sports scientist now going into the field and only learning about physical on-site stuff. You have to, you have, to have the capabilities to work with big data sets mm-hmm. now. So computer science, IT, data science is, I mm-hmm. think, essential. I'd, I'd in fact, if I had to prioritize it, I'd learn that before physiology. Yeah, <laughs> That's sure. the point it's getting to, I think. It's changed a lot to the, over the last few years, isn't it? Oh, yeah. yeah. I feel yeah. honestly like a dinosaur sometimes. I have to mm. ask data scientists to like help with <laughs> yeah. how do you extract and set up this and that. It's, it's, it's different. Yeah. 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 So that's yeah. really interesting. And that's an example. If you look this up, by the way, we'll sh- in fact, we'll share the, the link in the show notes. And you can find this article because maybe you're on Zwift and you fancy being part of the study and then maybe they're still looking. So that's that's the first one. Mm-hmm. Then Gareth's second goal in his hat-trick is something that he shared uh, earlier this week, an article from the BBC. Effectively, it's the Women's Six Nations at the moment. And the England coach, Simon Middleton, has suggested a rule change for goal kicking. That's based on the observation that so far in this tournament, 46% of tries have been converted Whereas in the men's tournament at the equivalent time point, it was 68%. And mm-hmm. that's pretty well known. Women's penalty and, con- and conversion success rates are way lower than men's. Mm-hmm. And a big part of that is that to kick accurately, you actually need quite a high power capacity, strength capacity mm-hmm. in your leg. because So women's rugby use the same ball as men's game. At yeah? the moment, the same ball. Yeah. And so what's happening is the relative strength difference between the sexes manifest in many ways but one of them in another way this is so that's why this is quite handy because it's yet another example of the difference between male and female in a performance outcome is if i'm trying to kick a 30 meter kick on the angle and my maximum range is 32 meters i'm kicking as hard as i can mm. a men's kicker is kicking at 70 percent, and so of course his accuracy is slightly better well quite a lot better actually mm. So what Middleton has suggested is that if you score a try near the corner, they should move the conversion in. You know, it's, for those in America, it's not like American football where a touchdown is converted from in front of the post. In rugby, you kick it from in line with where it was scored. Mm-hmm. And so he suggested that if you score within five meters of the touchline, the kicker should have the option to take the kick 10 meters inside to try and make it a li- little more, little less complicated and difficult to kick it. Yeah. I would suggest that there's another solution they should explore, and that's to change the size of the ball. <coughs> Excuse me. Because at the moment, the, the ball that women use, by virtue of the size and strength difference, is disproportionately large and heavy relative to their strength capabilities. Yeah. 
And that wouldn't so only even affect... passing is affected because a lot of men's players are literally taking with one hand able to throw it. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. I'm going into a tackle. My ability to hold the ball securely with one hand and get an offload with a free arm mm. is severely compromised in women because they can't get the fingers around the ball. The hand size is different. So, mm. yes, yeah, so in fact, that's probably the metric of interest is what is the circumference of the ball relative to typical hand diameter, if you wish, tip, tip to wrist, right? It's way larger for women than it is for men. Mm. And so men can do things with the ball. The passing speed, for instance, would be affected by it. The passing accuracy might be affected. And then, of course, kicks. And that's true of kicks from the ground and kicks from hand. You'd get longer hang time if you could kick a smaller, I think, smaller ball. Accuracy may go up. So we, we've well, no, Andy, actually, one of the questions I have around that is that does it, why does it matter that the women's sport and the women's rugby is different from the men's game because it's not you're trying you're not trying to have a men's versus a women's game it's not a competition exactly therefore the women's game is as a slightly different there's slightly different stats a slightly different gameplay yeah. therefore why not just keep it like that why does it have to have the same conversion rate as the men's game well, that's just the way it is i suppose you could argue it that way you could also argue it that that you you want the the product to be as attractive as possible now okay kicking maybe undermines that but the certainly the ability to pass in contact offloads fewer knock-ons faster passing if you could faster passing means the ball moves faster than the players you'll find more space as a mm. consequence so there are there are game aesthetic and appeal commercialization reasons where you might want the two games to look as similar as possible when, when we and we've actually tried to have this conversation with women around reducing the ball size by half you know so size five to four and a half that many of them rejected saying no we want to play the same game as the men with the same equipment mm. the consequence of that is that the game doesn't look the same mm. we did a podcast a while back where we discussed a paper out of norway on football soccer for americans where they were arguing that if if the size of the ball used by men was relatively the same as as for women, it would be a basketball in men's football. Yeah. <laughs> it would be heavier, slower. It would have major implications mm -hmm. on the game. The goalkeepers would make ma far more errors. And so there isn't. I think there is an argument to say that actually it, you create equality by giving them different equipment. So that happens all the time in track and field. The discus does not weigh the same because mm -hmm. if it did, the woman would throw at 50 meters, not 70. Yeah. Uh, probably even less. The shot put event would be vastly different if the men used a 4.2 or 4 kilogram weight or the women had to use the men's 7.3, I think it is. Mm. So there are other sports where this happens. I would like to see a trial that, at the very least in, in women's rugby to see if it changes the way the game is played. But you're right. Maybe it you tricky can... tricky because then you have to basically build another ball. There are, there, a size, is a a problem, size four and a half exists. Does it? Okay. Yeah, it exists. Yeah. In fact, <laughs> before COVID, we'd explored opportunities to trial it, and we had a whole bunch of these things sent us from Gilbert, and they're sitting there waiting, orphaned, waiting to be used. Mm. So <laughs> this trial could be done. Makes so you can also get it down to the junior game as well. That's why you? they exist in smaller yeah. sizes. Okay, kids, right. hearts, yeah. kids play with a four, you know. So anyway, I saw Middleton saying this. Well, Gareth saw Middleton saying this and shared it with me. And I just think, A, it's another cool illustration of how sex differences manifest in performance. And it does, I think, offer opportunities to make logical changes that will benefit the game. Yeah. But, but I hear what you're saying, and I hear what they were saying. They, they want the same ball, but then they must understand the game looks different. Or you have to accept that the game will look different. And you, but I, I do think, and Gareth made the point in the same message, 
is that the, the women's game is growing really rapidly because it's actually a lot of fun to watch. The skill level, I think, I think a lot of men say, oh, I've watched the Six Nations. I don't care. No, I'm not going to watch the women. It's like it's a, a substandard product. And I would hope they, like Gareth said, some of his mates have given it a chance and they actually say, this is actually a lot more entertaining sometimes than the men's game because yeah. it is still evolving and growing. So mm. I think it's quite an exciting space, but I can see that you could actually accelerate that even more by giving them equipment that, that overcomes some of the mm. challenges that they have because of the sex differences. Is there any difference in soccer in terms of the ball size? I honestly don't. I think mm. not at the elite level because otherwise that article from Norway wouldn't exist. Yeah. I mean, that whole, the, whole, the premise of that article is that you've got to make a smaller field and a smaller ball yeah. because of the sex differences, which currently aren't accounted for or catered for. So I suspect not. Basketball, I think it's smaller. And then as we've discussed in... Um, track and field differences and then tennis tennis remember there was a controversy we spoke about last year where the woman played with a different ball to the men at one of the tournaments yes I vaguely remember that so that does sometimes happen I don't think it happens for instance at the upcoming Grand Slams French and Wimbledon so it it seems a little bit arbitrary as to when sports governance decides to make changes or not but I think there's a logical rational reason why you would and so inst- for me, instead of tinkering with the law and moving the kick in and so forth, I would rather explore a change that has other potential benefits and just use that. Yeah, interesting one. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, then Gareth's third and final goal in his hat-trick. And again, thanks so much. I've really enjoyed reading these pieces. And this is another one that I, I will no doubt have more to report on, is that the NFL has just approved a helmet designed to reduce concussion in quarterbacks specifically. And so the... And and just by way of context, we when I say we world rugby meet the NFL annually because as contact sports we share many of the same problems legal player welfare and so forth. And in fact, in one month's time, I will be in New York for a meeting with them. Yeah, and I'm certainly going to bring this one up. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, the NFL have invested heavily in helmets as their primary method of reducing concussion risk in the game. They've changed certain laws as well based on where they knew concussion was most likely to happen. But helmets has been massively central to their concussion reduction campaign, and this is the latest initiative. And what Gareth was saying is, why only one position, and is there any scope for such a technology in rugby to reduce its concussion burden? Yeah. So why such a position? I think in this particular instance, and again, I'm going to ask them, you're going to hear this from the horse's mouth, well, but from me, as <laughs> reporting <laughs> as from the, the horse. horse's mouth. As I'll <laughs> because trans- you're there. I'll translate yes. the horse in you're a month or so. Right. Um, <laughs> the, the quarterbacks have got a risk of concussion that's a little bit different because oftentimes they get tackled and as they fall backwards, they hit their head on the ground. And the article that Gareth linked us to says that about half of all quarterback concussions happen that way. So what they've done is they've probably reinforced the padding mm. around the back of the head to try and reduce that specific risk. That's why it's position specific. Because the controversy there is that the brain bounces around in the skull exactly. whether you're wearing a helmet or not. Correct. So there's, uh, there's issues there, isn't there? And that's relevant to Gareth's next question, which was why does this not look, why has rugby not explored this? Is there evidence, mm. evidence around scrum caps? And there is some. It's very, these are very difficult studies to do. You'd think it's simple. Just look how many concussions happen in players wearing helmets or scrum caps and how many don't, and there you go. But you don't know. Oh, is there a difference? Do well, we, no. So, no. so far, the risk per 1,000 tackles or per 1,000 hours of playing rugby 
is unaffected by whether you wear a scrum cap or not. Mm. The, the best and the biggest study to date in rugby came out 2021 by a guy called Keith Stokes. I'll put that in the show notes. And it found no evidence that the risk was down. Mm. There's all kinds of things going on there. So for instance, it might be that the players wearing scrum caps are the players in positions more likely to be concussed. So it might be that your scrum cap actually is a flag for risk in the first place. And then even if it works, it doesn't look like it works because the risk's the same. You know? Well, because you essentially, because you're wearing a scrum, a scrum cap, that's, you would go into a contact situation with a little bit more bravado than you would that's do the second. That's the second part. So the first part is, if I'm playing in a flank or hooker position, and that's most of the guys wearing scrum caps are playing yeah. in those positions, yeah. that's the position who's going to make the most tackles, the most carries, and stick their head in the most drugs. So their exposure to risk events is probably higher. So I can't simply compare scrum cap to no scrum cap without adjusting for exposure to risk. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Then the second thing which you picked up on is it's called the Superman effect in lay terms or risk compensation in the academic world where once you've got something that might reduce your risk, you take risks that you wouldn't otherwise have taken. Classic example is people who wear sunscreen are more likely to get sunburn <laughs> because they think, especially if you get the wrong sunscreen and you go yes. in there with a factor 20 and you say, I'm protected and I spend five hours in the sun instead of one, I'm actually worse off. Now the same with scrum caps, as you've just pointed out, I might not take risks putting my head in places and going faster into contact than I would have done because of a false sense of security yeah. that ends up cancelling out any possible benefit that I would have gotten from it. So that's that's possibility number two. Mm. And nobody knows that. So you, you'd have to track over many years a player and somehow assess his risk-taking, his risk inclination, and then try and assess whether it's, it's very difficult to do. I suppose the only way you notice that is if actually the incidences of concussion actually increased with with things like scrum caps. And there is some um, evidence that yeah. it does. The guy mm. presented in Amsterdam at last year's concussion conference. It was one of the oral presentations, an Irish researcher who's now based out of Canada. And he was saying that there's a suggestion that it might go up. Mm. Um, so, And I've, yeah. I've seen some Which data... Which would then support that theory that exactly. there is this bravado element. Yeah. Or, or that the guys wearing scrum caps are wearing them because they had previous concussions. Mm. So I had a concussion six months ago, two months ago, now I put a scrum cap on, and we know that one concussion likely increases the risk of another one. Mm. And so maybe you wearing the scrum cap because you had a greater risk of concussion, and so you pick up that. Mm. See, it's simple question, complicated answer. Um, so yeah, I've seen other studies where cyclists with helmets are far less likely to have accidents. Yes. Because the, have, you, have you heard that yes. theory? Same. There are some people who believe that wearing a helmet is actually a negative rather than a positive in yeah. cycling. Yeah. Based, on my experience, based on my experience this morning in the traffic, <laughs> I would not get on a bike in without a some roads without a helmet on because <laughs> even not. if I'm doing the safest thing in the world, every car is not. So no. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say my risk of a head injury is all on me. No. That's the problem. No. And so, so a, helmet, a helmet can't prevent a concussion. So, so I suppose now the next question is, why does a scrum cap in rugby, those soft shell ones, not work? And as you pointed out, the mechanism of concussion, it's almost like an internal injury caused by the movement of the brain inside the skull. So as the head accelerates, either rotational or linear, the, the brain moves inside and it hits the inside. It's like mm. best example I can think of is a fill a glass of water halfway, put a table tennis ball, ping pong ball in there, and then shake the glass around. The glass, the ping pong ball is being damaged by hitting the inside of the glass. Mm. Not The injury is not coming from outside. Does that make mm. sense? Yeah. yeah. So quite how the NFL have managed to get helmets that 
reduce concussion risk and they really do believe this because they've got they've now got a list of approved helmets that they've graded as a plus a b c d <laughs> mm. i don't know maybe maybe you can have a soft shell around the head and then a helmet and the combination almost creates like a, a, a torque dampening system that reduces mm. the acceleration of the brain because it transfers the energy in the mm. helmet mm. whereas a soft scrum cap can't do that because it's literally one layer mm. so maybe future technology and scrum caps will unlock a way for them to work but at the moment it doesn't whereas it does seem to work in the nfl and i literally after gareth sent this sent an email to our chief medical officer saying when we meet them please can we put this on the agenda because yeah. i want to i want to understand a bit better like why they get it right and soft scrum don't yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah. So very interesting. Because I suppose the question from that, from, from the question that kind of crops up, and I don't know whether it's even possible to answer this, but we, there's always a comparison between the injury risk in rugby versus American football. Mm. But they are very different games yeah. in the fact that in American football, they are hitting you hard, and they're, 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 the laws around hitting a player and tackling a player are a little bit, um, you know, you can do more of that than you can in rugby. There's more laws yeah. revolving around it. What, what is a great tackle in American football is a collision in rugby. Yeah and would probably be red carded a lot of the time. Mm. And in fact, the evolution of the two laws was in part enabled by helmets because Mm. you couldn't make some of the tackles they make without a helmet because you'd actually like, your skull would be in danger. Mm. And they've banned things like leading with a helmet now. You Mm. get like, that's the worst penalty you can concede and potential what they call ejection from the game, red card, you know. Mm. Um, Yeah, so you're not allowed to now strike with the top of the helmet, the crown of the helmet, they call it. Mm. But if they played without helmets, the whole the, the way they tackle would have to change quite mm. significantly. So yeah. there's an argument to be made that for them to reduce the risk would be no helmets. But like so I American say, football is not a soft version of rugby. Let's put it that way. There's no, always that the rugby aficionados will say, "Oh, it's, rugby oh, is just a, some of the, it's just a harder version of American football." It's not at all. Some of the uh, collisions in American <laughs> football are two players like yes. without any restraint. The thing about rugby is I've you have seen to some bind. YouTube clips oh. about the biggest hits in American you get, football. You get wow. blokes get spun like it's like a yeah, cartoon yeah. picture of a yeah, guy getting literally spun yeah. 360 I suppose degrees. That's the entertainment value, isn't it? That's what they love. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think in rugby, you know, the, 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 the necessity of having to bind in the tackle or the ruck causes some degree of moderation um, mm. control to be introduced that doesn't always exist in that sport. So it is, yeah. it's incredibly brutal. Yeah, very interesting. But yeah. both are, both have, in fact, when you, when you compare the concussion rates using the same metrics, they're pretty similar. Mm. Um, and so both, that's why we meet, that's why we have so much mm. in, in common so yeah, I'm going. As I say, we've yeah. got a, we've got a meeting with them in New York. Report and report back on that actually, because there's been good stuff coming out of yeah, that. Yeah, definitely yeah. will. It'll be yeah. really interesting. Yeah. yeah, and then the last one comes to us via Troy Squires. Aha. Who I should actually introduce to you. You may have noticed those of you who follow us on the socials, the IG <laughs> and the and the Twitter. Uh, we've upped our Instagram and Twitter game in the last month or two, and that's not us. We've raised the bar. Yeah, he's raised the bar for he us. He has indeed. So you can find him at Troy Malloy. That's his Instagram handle, Troy Malloy. He's a mate. He's a keen cyclist, triathlete, long-distance runner, does some crazy things on bikes and, and mountains. Mm-hmm. And he's into marketing, and so he's taken on the 
social media side for us. And I think it's, it's been even really changed our logo a little bit. Changed that. It's yeah. given us design skills we wouldn't otherwise have. <laughs> maybe you would have. I, I certainly don't. I'm not going to pretend to be anything so like he that. D- he does what we don't necessarily have time for. So, And in my case, skills for. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's Troy at Troy Malloy. So if you're looking for someone to do a little bit of social support, he's got an extensive marketing background. He's in marketing now. He's done... And he knows sport really well, so give him a shout. Anyway, <laughs> aside from doing marketing, he sent me a link yesterday saying the Boston Marathon, which is on Monday, I'm not sure mm. when you'll be listening to this, either is going to or will have awarded its first ever title to a non-binary runner. Mm-hmm. And when I saw it, I thought of you because I know <laughs> that you loved you loved it when New York did the same thing. Yes. <laughs> and this is sarcastic. $5,000 the New York winner, wasn't it? Yeah. Sarcastic font in full force here, yeah. folks, if you're wow. not aware. The the nation, anyway, you, you tell me what you think of it. Yeah. I mean, it, it's one of those subjects. I know I was trying to find out and need some of the stories that we read around the New York Marathon where... I remember reading something about the fact that the first winner was then rounded down to the next winner as people then identified themselves as non-binary. And of course, this $5,000 prize money was significant because as you would expect, and as letsrun.com quoted, guess what biological sex the winner was. Mm. Of course, it's male. Exactly. Um, so again, it raises that, that subject around why i don't get it i understand wokeness and all that stuff and being politically correct but i don't understand why there is a different division because we know who's going to win it i think you'll find they'll say you don't well yes and, I know. and but i I, know. I, I totally get what it's you're how saying. you identify that's, i'll put it that's this way they, if everyone in the race identified as non-binary when they entered 100 mm. percent chance that prize is won by male yeah of course if half the race identified then it's a 99% chance, depending which half identifies. And I think 27 have identified as non-binary for Boston. So for Boston, a couple of things that I gather won't happen is, I assume that they'll say that unless you've already registered, you can't now, after the fact, claim to be non-binary. So whereas in New York, it's felt like they were entertaining applications or changes in class after the fact. Yeah, I wish or, I could find that story that I read about it, but I can't. Or, or disqualifying people who'd entered but clearly weren't. But how do you know that? Because yeah. how do you that's the whole weird circular the basis of what? argument that they've mm. created is you, you can't challenge identity. So if someone yeah. comes and says I am, then they are, right? Yeah. How do you it's the same as the power lifter. Mm. <laughs> like everyone can that's why it's so absurd. Well I'll be honest with you, I've got to go to the press conference for the Two Oceans Marathon today. And I'm very tempted to ask the question of the organizers whether they're gonna have a non-binary section as New York Marathon and <laughs> the Boston Marathon did. <laughs> Just to cause a little bit of an interest in the in the very dull press conferences that they have. <laughs> No, but then you're going to be the catalyst for it next year. And then, then when, when, when that catches my eye next year, I'm going to say that you're the, the root of this particular... I'll tell you what I'm going to do. If I do answer this at the press conference, ask this at the press conference, I'm going to record it just because I, think <laughs> I wanted to see what they say. You can pretend you're from Napier or something. Exactly. Um, that's an inside joke, folks. The, the, okay, so why, why is it a problem? It's a problem because equality in sport has been a real challenge for female participants. Like even mm. now... There are many, many sports, cycling, for instance, with the prize money for men, dwarfs women. Remember when the, the first Paris-Roubaix for women was held? And like they were making for riding their race like a, when you, like a tiny, tiny proportion of what mm. men were making. And I'm sure that that still exists in many races. In tennis, it's only relatively recently that the Grand Slams have offered equal prize money. In women's soccer, it was big news recently when women from the U.S. were finally given the 
the the same salaries as men were, the same contract values. Yeah. So this is not even a historical argument that women are fighting for equality. What what these non-binary categories do, and okay, for the sake of disclosure, Boston won't have prize money for yes. this non-binary. Which so is very important. In that regard, it's a little different from New York. So it's really <clears throat> just the prestige. But they do award first, second, and third in each category. Yeah. yeah. And so there's a medal and there's a prize for it, effectively, not money. But the point is that, that women fight for equality in prizes. And then here is a category that is guaranteed to diminish equality between males and females. That's why it's a problem. It doesn't necessarily take from the, away from the women's category, though, does it? No, it doesn't take away from the women's category. It's not allowing it's a transgender athlete to participate in the women's category. Correct. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't they probably would. No, I don't know what yes. Boston's policy on that would be. Yeah. I suppose now that World Athletics has made a call on it, they have mm. to comply with that because they would have, they would need to be, be under that auspices. Yeah. So at least there's that. But that's why it's a problem. It's just a, it's just a reflection of a social push that actually undermines everything that women have yeah. had to fight for in terms of equality. Because there is no doubt that it would be incredibly unusual. It would require one of the best females in the world to declare non-binary, and none of the top. 20% males. Yeah. That's that's what it would take. You'd have to you'd have to be a top 1 to 2% female mm. entering that category and hope that no one in the top 15% mm. of the males did it. I think the winner of the New York Marathon binary section was just over 3 hours, 305 or something like that. So, it was a bit bit faster, but again, yeah, the but point anyway, is it was, it was it was it wasn't it's not high in, but it correct. was quick. And there would have been hundreds if not thousands of women faster than that. As worthy except for the fact that they don't identify. And what, what, again, the point is, what does identity have to do with sport? By all means, live your life the way you wish to, but in a sporting context, I just, anyway, so that's, that's why. It's not, it's not as overt an um, encroachment into women's spaces as trans women would be, but I do think that it's something, you know, and it's just a reminder of the, some of the issues. And on that, on that note, actually, in the last week, there's a there's a trans woman by the name of D- Dylan Mulvaney. I don't know whether you've seen this. And Dylan Mulvaney is now endorsed by a couple of big companies. I think Bud or, mm. or Coors. I think it's Bud and Nike to advertise women's sports bras mm. as trans women. Mm. And there's a video that's been doing the rounds, and I'm not even going to link to it because I, I find it like incredibly distasteful of this Dylan Mulvaney doing what I think is supposed to pass as women's exercise, mm. like prancing about doing in what, what I can only charitably describe is if you asked an immature 15-year-old boy to mock girls doing exercise, that's what it would look like. Mm. It honestly is deeply offensive. Mm. And Dylan Mulvaney is now a Nike ambassador for doing that stuff. It's mm. actually like, and it wouldn't even register. I wouldn't care about this person if it wasn't for Nike throwing a sponsorship at them. Now it's a sports issue and I care. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the kind of thing we've gotten to is like where, where these like this is to me it's misogyny the first the first ever post that dylan mulvaney made on on what's called day one of being a girl right Mm. is i've already cried three times written a scathing email i didn't send ordered dresses online that i couldn't afford and when someone asked me how i was i said i'm fine but i wasn't fine how did i do ladies (laughs) how how can anyone not find that deeply offensive it's incredibly and i mean we all we all do it we've done it on this podcast where something slips out and you realize you're Mm. just drifting into casual sexism Mm. you know it's like it's hard to resist because it's it's societal but this is nike is rubber stamping that and it's actually it's actually awful it's awful 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 yeah just for the record jacob caswell 
did win the uh, win the non brownie section in New York in two forty five. So that was I thought much it was quicker a little than bit I thought. Yeah. I thought it was a little bit quicker. Yeah, yeah. I think the initial one was three ten, but yeah, two forty five was quick. But remember, mm. we spoke about our athlete who was I think just outside the top ten, mm. and I assume that's not in prize money. Running two twenty six or something. Mm. So, yeah. So there you go. Like here's five thousand for being genuinely mediocre relative yeah. to the best females in the world, and that's yeah. the problem. Like it's I, it just yeah. doesn't sit well with me. But anyway, that's not a fun topic. Particularly the the social. The, anyway, the small veiny thing. I think is like genuinely distasteful. Yeah. Um, find that video and you tell me if you think it's uh, something anyone should yeah. approve of. It's a good discussion point, but it's also something that I'd, yeah, we, we, maybe we talk about it too much sometimes, I think. Because, yeah, perhaps, uh, eh? perhaps. But again, I mean, you remember we, a couple of weeks ago. I think we both feel very strongly about it. Maybe that's what it is. Yeah, let's let's try not to. Yeah, the science. We, we know the status We know now. the science. We know the status. So like yeah. maybe we we park it and we, we get onto Like actually, yeah. we can talk about actual women's sports performances instead of this yes. nonsense. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. that would be great. Yeah. Right, so let's get on to our subject of the day. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So last week we discussed uh, some of the basics around fatigue and particularly around sport fatigue. Obviously, that's our area of focus and we focused on the physiology of it. So if you need to get a bit of a deep dive into that aspect of it, we'll touch on some of the things we touched on last week. But this week we're going to get into something a little bit more detailed and that's the concept of fatigue resistance. So I read a lot about fatigue resistance because it's kind of doing the rounds. And the reason why it's doing the rounds is because of people like Tade Pagacha, who people are <laughs> claiming has more fatigue resistance than most that's why he is performing and winning things like Flanders um, and there is stories about how the Kenyans have this fatigue resistance that nobody else has and I guess my first question Ross is 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 fatigue resistance a new discovery or is it just a, a new term for an old theory the latter and it's in fact even like an option C would be there's a new term that's been given to fatigue resistance I think largely driven by like some exciting data. We spoke earlier about the emergence of big data sets and one of them comes from cycling. So in the last two years, since 2021-ish, I've seen a number of papers that call talk about a concept called durability, mm-hmm. which when you talk about fatigue resistance, I think is, is one manifestation of durability. There's physiological durability and then there's performance durability. And that's where the, the p- fatigue resistance manifests as a performance outcome. Mm. So it's it's certainly not it's certainly not a new concept, and I think it's actually quite an intuitive and obvious one. But I think what's happened is that power meters in cycling, in particular, have allowed people to gather data, such enormously in-depth, broad data sets that have allowed us to quantify in a way that was never possible before exactly what fatigue does to performance, and that's where durability then gains traction. And so durability becomes the name of the game. Since 2021, a paper comes out in a journal called Sports Medicine. And in this paper, there's a guy called Ed Maunders, who's the main author on it. Again, we'll share the link with you. Maunders, sorry, not Maunders. 
And they introduced this concept of durability in which they say durability is defined as the time of onset and magnitude of deterioration in physiological profiling characteristics over time. So, okay, lots of syllables. Mm-hmm. The, so it's the time of onset and it's how long does it take and the magnitude of deterioration, how much does it drop, mm-hmm. what's it, is changes in what you can profile physiologically. So it could be heart rate, it could be energy expenditure, it could be ventilation, or in the case of the durability in cycling debate, it's actually power output, performance capabilities, right? Mm-hmm. Now, if you watched the Olympics when Mark Spitz was swimming, guarantee you, you, yeah, you, so would, have heard, 70s. you would have heard concepts around this. If you watch any marathon from the last 20 years and there's two athletes coming to the finish line and one of them used to be a really good track runner and one of them didn't have track pedigree, you will hear commentators say something like, Kipchoge, okay, let's talk Boston. Helena Berry's running. So let's say Helena Berry's in, she's a great track runner. She had, I think, sub four minute 1500, one of the fastest ever, unbelievable track, 5,000, 10,000 speed. Helena Berry is speed. Mm-hmm. Let's say the woman with her at that moment, whoever it may be, doesn't have that track background. And I bet maybe you've even said this in commentary yourself is that the track runner is there just sitting, waiting to unleash a kick. Mm. And now she's the favorite because she's got the speed over the final. 800 meters. I always think of Alana Mann, Gerata Tulu in the 92 Olympics, uh, right. the, where Gerata okay. Tulu was the, the, the one with the finishing kick and Alana Mayer was the one who was the right. person just trying to basically hurt her legs so that she couldn't touch Correct. her. So even before you knew about theories of durability and fatigue resistance, you knew that one of those athletes had to do something to try and blunt the other one. Right, you, yeah. just, you just know it. You watch a swimming event, women's 400 meter freestyle. One of them's coming down from 800, one of them's coming up from 200. The 800 swimmer has an obligation to make it hard so that the 200 swimmer can't access that special specialty at the finish, right? Makes sense. Yeah. Al Garouge, when he was running on the track, he was a 1500 meter world record holder, went up to 5,000. If you let the pace drift in a 5,000, he was 100% of the time beating you. Because in the last two laps, he, he was just the best ever at 1500 and you've effectively teed him up. So everyone knew that they had to go hard from six, seven laps out. They often didn't, <laughs> easier yeah. said than done. And the whole premise there is that someone can have unbelievable speed over one minute, 400 meters, five minutes, two kilometers, whatever it is, when they are fresh. But how well they can access that when they are fatigued is the concept of durability. Okay. So that does that help with understanding what it means? Yeah. All right. I'll so, let you finish because I've got a couple of questions I want to. Okay. So I'll, I'll finish yeah, yeah. in two sentences. Yeah. So when we talk about cycling, for instance, because we'll get data from power output, there are cyclists whose ability to produce power for one minute is top five percent in the world. They are the the sprinters of the peloton. After four hours of riding on a tough course, they can only access ninety five percent of that capacity which would allow someone who's normally at 96% of them, but who can access all of it to beat them in a sprint. Make sense? Yes. <laughs> so the one sprinter, the one, one cyclist has higher durability because no matter how fatigued they are, they are closer to their fresh baseline. The other cyclist has worse durability because they drop off more as they accumulate fatigue over time. And so there's a tactical outcome that then would have to be almost respected here. Like you've got to expose if, if, you, if you believe that a rival has a lack of durability, you know exactly how to expose it. 
So that's so, what durability. So means. do we? So we do we know? And and this, again, this is a, a an open ended question that there are obviously athletes that don't have a a kick, and there are athletes that can maintain a high speed, mm. and sometimes that. It, do we know that athletes that have a relatively high finishing kick don't necessarily have the speed that somebody who doesn't have a finishing kick goes from that? And does and does that apply to endurance sports in general? In other words, does the long the long throw, the long dice, uh, if done well enough, always beat the, 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 the sprinter? Or does the sprinter always have a chance of maintaining? No, the, the sprinter's always got a chance, especially in the yeah. elites, because, the, okay, and this is where we'll go with this, is that the very best cyclists have unbelievably good durability. They drop off very little, mm. no matter how much fatigue they accumulate. So if you look at them fresh, and you look at them after, say, 4,000 kilojoules worth of work, which is a ton, <laughs> we'll get to exactly how you measure that in a moment, their their performance relative to their own fresh maximum is really really good for example and let's talk studies in in 2022 a study came out Matteo March who's one of the Spanish physiologists working with Spanish cycling so they get access to their Spanish pro teams found for instance that a world tour cyclist can maintain the same one and five minute power outputs even after 45 kilojoules per kilograms worth of work. And that, that with, to get to that level, you're talking four hours of pretty hard racing and then a one-minute sprint at the end. They can access the same power then as they do when they're at the start of the day. So I mean, the question, it's, it's is it, remarkable. Is it, is it not just different muscles? Uh, yeah, no, well, not between, the, not between the pro cyclist who can do that, whereas when you look at a Pro tour cyclists, so remember that's sort of tier two. You get world tours, now they're top of the pops. Yeah. And then your pro tour guys, the data from Mateo Mars shows that after 45 kilojoules per kilogram, and again, park that, I'll tell you how we work this out in a moment, they drop by 2.5% after that in their one-minute effort. Their five-minute effort drops by 1.3%. Their 60-minute effort is almost 3% lower after accumulating significant fatigue, whereas the world tour guy is only 1% lower. Right. So everyone's vulnerable to fatigue, mm. but what this data is coming out shows us is that the very best of the best, the category one guy, the <laughs> even, <coughs> excuse me, long COVID, even within, <laughs> uh, only half joking, even within the world tour, you get the guys who are your category A, you know, the top performing guys, they drop off less than the guys who are category B, if you wish, the ones who earn fewer points on the yeah. pro tour. So so what it's saying is that the distinguishing feature sometimes, and this is what's really interesting, is when you assess world tour and pro tour, category A and B, climbers or sprinters, in a fresh state, they don't look different. That's what's really interesting. So the best guys, Venegor, Pogaccia, Evenepoel, and Roglic, let's say, they're the top four at the moment, G, G, GC guys, right? Grand Tour guys. Mm-hmm. In a fresh state, they don't look really all that much different to what a lot of second-tier guys look. Yeah, The difference is after the fourth hour of cycling, their ability to reproduce the same as near-max performances over one minute, five minutes, 20 minutes, that's what makes the difference. Okay. So that's the key thing. So some of it is muscle. So why is, why is Van Apoel and Van Aert the sprinter guys at the end of a cobbled classic? And Pogaccia knows he can't bring them to the finish. Is because they've got fast twitch muscle fibers and biochemistry and neurological systems that allow them to just generate more power over 30 seconds than he ever can. Mm. 
But he also understands that if he makes it so hard that he drags them to the finish, that's where his best chance is. Because mm. even though his normal 30 per second power might be 100 watts less, he can make them pay 105 watts mm. and he only pays one. <laughs> And then he beats them. Does that make sense? Yeah, makes yeah. sense. Yeah. It's the same thing in the Boston Marathon. Like, if you know you've got a really fast 10K athlete, you can't let the pace drift because what you really have to do is hurt that person. The, the problem is you hurt yourself too. Yes. So, so yeah. it's interesting. I, I did an interview with Annemiek van Fleet, and of course, the Olympic champion, mm. the world champion, and probably, in fact, at the moment, number one ranked cyclist, women's cyclist in the world at the moment. And um, one of the things I asked her is that she was very, you know, she's famous for doing a lot of mileage. I think she did 32,000 kilometers in training in 2022. And I said, she said, well, that's true because as she's got older, she's had to do more training to stimulate the body to build and react. And she said for her that a hard race is better, for, is easier for her to win. So the more the endurance levels, in other words, stage mm. races and hard um, single day races are definitely suited better because she has what she believes as the ability to be able to have more fatigue resistance. Mm. Whereas a more tactical race and single day races that are not hard, she finds it harder because she doesn't have that absolute sprint that the younger yeah. athletes have. So right. she's a prime example of somebody that has developed into a rider where fatigue resistance is almost a skill and actually part of her armory. Yeah. And that might be based on the fact that she is 40 years of age and Could maybe be. she just got so much training yeah, so behind some, her. So this know? is, in terms of like quantifying it, once you've quantified it, because as, as I say, the concept is fairly intuitive and coaches and commentators and athletes themselves would have understood, you know, like I've got to do something to load fatigue on because fatigue is going to cost them more than me. That's how I beat the fast athlete. So, yeah. but now the, the power data is what I think is allowed quantification. And because you can quantify it, there's like new questions. And one of those questions is what determines durability. So mm. to, to just to take a step back, if durability is defined as your ability to reproduce the same or similar power outputs in a fatigued state as a fresh state, then Van Floyten has recognized that her durability is one of her key competitive advantages. Correct. And so it's funny because like she would almost say, you know, some people would say fatigue is the great equalizer. You know, you can't judge at the end of a marathon who's going to win that sprint. But for some people, fatigue isn't the equalizer. It's the thing that blows it out. <laughs> so yeah. they, she's, she's one of those who actually wants to use fatigue to open the gap. Correct. And someone like maybe a Kopecky or Demi Vollering wants to use fatigue, wants to minimize fatigue to minimize that gap, knowing they can beat her at the end of a short stage where Correct. they've sat in the wheels for the day. Correct. Makes sense, right? Yeah, absolutely. So now the question is, well, why do some people have durability that others don't? Mm. And there's no doubt the training load must be one of the factors. Interesting study came out of a group actually with some South African connections, Duran Swartz on the paper, a guy called James Sprague. And what they did was they had a squad of cyclists that they monitored over a competitive season. They were under 23 professionals. So young guys, 23, under 23. And they looked at their durability early to mid to late season. Now, maybe worth pausing to just explain what the data looks like. When, when you have a cyclist, a pro cyclist who's doing six or seven races every couple of months and training sessions, seven, 800K a week in a normal week. <laughs> you can measure what's the highest power output you saw for five seconds, for 30 seconds, for one minute, for two minutes. And that's, that's basically your, your record power output profile or your maximum um, power, pro, power outputs and so forth. What you can then do is you can say, all right, when this person had done less than a thousand kilojoules of work, 
this is what their curve looked like. If you if you guys are on Strava or you use Garmin or Wahoo, whichever, you'll have a power curve that you would have seen in your software. You've seen yours, yeah? Yes. Yeah. That's the power curve that we're talking about here. So for instance, just out of interest, to give you some, this is a really cool study by Valenzuela et al, where they had access to hundreds of cyclists and literally hundreds of thousands of training sessions. To be in the top 10% in the professional peloton, you need to produce about 14 watts per kilogram for 10 seconds. That's the peak power for 10 seconds. Mm -hmm. For five minutes, it's six and a half watts a kilo. So you work out, I mean, what was that, 600 odd watts for you for five minutes? Yes. That's, that's a, I mean, it's like scary numbers. For 20 minutes, it's five and a half watts, puts you in the top 10%. Six watts puts you in the top 2%. Then you're on Pogacas and Rogliches and Vinegar's Wheel, right? Uh, 60 minutes is 4.7 watts. To be in the peloton in the last 10%, like for instance, your five-minute power needs to be uh, 7.6 watts per kilogram. Sorry, that's the other. Sorry, the, uh, what I've just given you now is the bottom 10%. Mm -hmm. To be in the top 10%, 7.6 watts per kilogram. That's the 90th percentile. So you can see, like, so the bottom 5%, 10%, 6.5 watts a kilo. The top 10%, 7.6 watts a kilo. Sure. What that's they're doing. It's a significant difference, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. that's the difference yeah. between. Yeah. That's on Flash Volon on Wednesday. Yeah. That's the difference between being coming around that last bend in the first five versus yeah. being the guy shelled off at the bottom yeah, of the climb. Absolutely, right? yeah. So, yeah, and then 20 minute watts is 6.6 .6 watts a kilo for the top 10% and 5.5 .5 for the bottom 10. Over 60 minutes, it's 4.7 at the back and 5.8 at the front. I mean, it's Whoa. huge numbers, just enormous numbers. So, basically, the top. The top 10% of the professional peloton are doing for 60 minutes what the bottom 10% are doing for about 15 minutes. Hmm. So you see how it's... That's why you've got teams. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So you want one guy to say, okay, you can do five minutes at uh, 6.5 watts a kilo. You, that's you. You, you go. <laughs> and then someone else will take over who can do it for 10 minutes. And then eventually I'll take over and finish the job. Yeah. yeah. So what they've done is they've made these power curves. But then they've said, all right, well, let's do a new power curve that's only relevant after 2,000 kilojoules worth of work. Now, in terms of this work, if you, if you cycled at 250 watts, you do 900 kilojoules in one hour. That's because a watt, remember a watt is a joule per second. Yeah. So 250 watts equals 250 joules every second, which means 0.25 joules every second, kilojoules every second, times that by 60, times that by 60, 900. Right. So they'll say, for instance, I'll assume you're right on that. No, it's, I've, I've, it's verified. Um, so 3,000 kilojoules would be the equivalent of riding for three and a half hours at 250 watts. Then let's see what you can do for one minute, for five minutes, for 20 minutes, for one hour. And that's what's happened here. They've done these analyses. So in this particular study by Sprague et al., they looked at that mid -se early season, mid-season, late season. What they found was that you Can I try and predict it? Yeah. <coughs> I would suggest that the fatigue resistance gets better the more the, the, the later in the season, purely because they are fitter and more miles than them. So I'm going to predict it that way. And you would be wrong. <laughs> it's the other <laughs> okay. way around. Okay. It's the other way around. So this is where it's interesting, right? So what they found is that the, the, the power outputs at any duration are lower later in the season than they were in the beginning. So the durability, the drop from a fresh to fatigued, during a 12-minute maximal test. So they used a 12-minute test mm -hmm. in this one. So fresh, you produce, let's say, 350 watts. Fatigue, 340. 
end of the season, it drops more. So the drop from fresh to fatigued was higher late than early season. And the reason for that, they reckon, in the paper is because... Your training state, your, the nature of your load changes over the course of the season such that you move away from doing slower, longer rides and you do more high-intensity stuff. So the argument that they made in this paper called the relationship between training characteristics and durability in professional cyclists is that lower-intensity training probably helps with durability more than the high-intensity work does. Okay. Yes. Remember we discussed a while back... Um, the concept of polarized training. Hmm. The more polarized your training got in this particular study, the better your durability appeared. So the the, the because you were focusing on those long slow rides, r- yeah, which so is you kind do- of what Annemiek from Fleetland does a lot of. Yeah, a little yeah. bit, right? So I'll read to you that the fatigued power profile varies throughout a competitive season. The difference between fresh and fatigued is not fixed. A tendency towards polarized training intensity distribution is associated with an improvement in fatigue power profile. So the more you polarize it, so you you keep doing your high intensity stuff, like let's simplify, it's three zones, high intensity, moderate, low. If you start middle loading it, so that you do more middle stuff, your durability might come down. And so they were arguing in this paper that that seems to be one of the things associated hmm. with it. So that's one theory for it. So one theory is that more yeah. base miles improves fatigue resistance, which I suppose... So then you could argue that people like Pogaccia are maybe doing more base miles than most, if that theory is correct. Yeah, there's going to be a massive genetic component <laughs> to it as well. I'm reaching here. I there, know. Are some, there are some people who just have it, maybe. You know, yeah. That's the other thing. So just in terms of the finding, a significant relationship was found between training time below the first ventilatory threshold. Now, we covered all these thresholds in a previous part. I don't want to rehash that. But basically, think about that as your lower intensity training zone. So the more time you spend below that first threshold, i.e. in lower intensity, the greater your improvements in power output over two minutes and a shift towards polarized intensity distribution and improvements in absolute and relative 12-minute maximal power. So more training lower intensity. And so later in the season when your training time is compromised by race participation races force you into higher intensity periods more often your durability actually goes down so that's why in fact that's why it's probably not possible to maintain a level of performance from the first race of the season to the end of the season that's why no one's going to be competitive in three grand tours and in fact even two consecutive ones no one's winning a Giro and a tour where turn of Walter may be a little bit more possible. But anyway, there's models now that explain this. What's interesting about that is that a lot of riders will tell you, and I think this applies a lot of it to cycling. I haven't heard about it in running before, but in cycling they talk about like racing to get fit and how cyclists will go into a season a little bit undertrained and use the race weekends to get fit. But this kind of flies in the face of that. That's saying that the way that you can actually improve your fitness is to reduce that intensity. And for a pro rider, those little gaps between the races would probably be better for them to do low intensity work than it would be to do high intensity work, purely because that's going to give them the, the, the mm. physiological benefit across pretty much everything. They're not only fatigue resistance, but also absolute power. Yeah, and, we, and remember we discussed that when we t- spoke about polarized training, is that there's a tendency to want to like 
expose yourself to the demand mm. and you actually don't have to you, you you might get better by staying below the race demand you say okay i want to be really good at five minute efforts you don't have to go out and do five minute efforts all the time mm. you because remember the low intensity training is stimulating the same physiological metabolic biochemical adaptations what you still need the high intensity training for, I think, are those neurological adaptations. Mm. And for some of the biochemistry at the top end, when I'm trying to go, you know, seven, eight watts a kilogram for, for those five to seven minute efforts. Yeah. The attacking and like the shifts in pace that are required on a climb. You still have to practice the neurological exposure, but you don't need much of that. What you do need a lot of is just volume and low intensity. So, and we've done, we've done podcasts on this where we've talked everything from. The, the experts talking about the 80-20 rule, 80% easy and 20% hard. And then there's obviously a school of thought that goes 90-10 now. And again, that supports that idea, which is often something we talked about a lot in the podcast, but very difficult for people necessarily to understand when they're training. And I often say the difference between professionals and amateurs is the ability to be able to train at the right zones. When when Because we know that we go out on a Saturday morning ride with friends, we're not going to ride zone two the whole way because there's some ego involved. There's mm. a climb to go up, but the professionals actually do do that. They go out there and they ride easy for five hours because that's yeah. what they're designed to and do. And when they're riding easy, they're still going 22k yes. an hour up a 4% yes. grade and it's yes. fun. Mm. Whereas we like to push because we want to go faster. So, yes. yeah. so there's, that helps. You know, If the engine's faster, you can idle it at faster speeds. The engine's bigger. So, so I mean, that's definitely it, the case. Is it, I mean, is it a step then to kind of say that Fatigue resistance is a function of low-intensity exercise. A little bit, because you see there's a catch. There's always a catch with this There's stuff. always a catch. <laughs> a study came out, uh, let me just get the date, earlier this year, 16th of Feb, so a couple of months back, right? Mm -hmm. It's published by Finnish researchers. Pekka Matamaki is the main author. A couple of them are from the Parvo Nomi Center and Unit for Health and Physical Activity in Finland. Sounds like they know what they're talking about. And the title is, <laughs> the title is Durability is Improved by Both Low and High Intensity Endurance Training. So now, okay. <laughs> <laughs> just when I so, had it all formulated just, in my head. <laughs> you never have it all formulated. That's the problem. So, so what they did in this study was, and this is maybe the main thing, right? And you'll be sensitive to this, I think, and why. In the methods, sedentary and recreationally active men and women completed either low-intensity training or high-intensity training for six weeks, uh, for 10 weeks, sorry. Now, they define durability in this study a little bit differently. It's physiological, not performance. So they look, for instance, in this study at the degree of drift in energy expenditure. So in the first minute, first five, 10 minutes, your heart rate is X, your energy expenditure is Y, your ventilation is Z. Over time, they go up at the same power output. You've all experienced that. Like you're, if you if you only trained to heart rate, you would get slower and slower over the course of a ride. Yes, because it goes. If up. you maintain the same distance, your heart rate would go up. Correct. That's yes. cardiac drift, and it happens Correct. for a few reasons. One is the loss of plasma volume. Another one is your body temperature goes up, and that directly stimulates heart rate. Mm. Others are that you might become metabolically less efficient over time. You start recruiting fast-twitch muscle fibers, which need to have a little bit more metabolic demand. And, the, and there's so, fatigue. And there's fatigue. Yeah. Well, that's that's actually bun that's what fatigue that, is, yeah, kind of, right? So, yeah. It's all those But there is a contributing. muscles do get tired. Yeah, so your heart rate rises in response. So in this particular study, they measured durability at the start, and then 10 weeks of training later, they did it again. And what they found was that whether you did low-intensity or high-intensity training, your, your durability 
improves by the same amount. So for instance, I just want to find the figures for you and then zoom in on these here so I can read them. Energy expenditure before is your energy expenditure goes up 6.4% over the course of a three-hour constant exercise ride. By the time you finish 10 weeks of training, it only goes up by four. So you've dropped the, the increased cost by 2.4 percentage points. In the high-intensity group, it grows from 6.5 to 3. Same, statistically, same change. Cardiac drift, it changes by 2.4% uh, beats per minute, sorry, before and then afterwards it changes by less. So all the physiological, let's call them perturbations, disruptions, are, are smaller as a consequence of 10 weeks training. And in this particular study, it didn't make a difference whether you did it at low intensity or high intensity. The, the, the high intensity one was like these blocks of four to seven minute intervals making up to 30 minutes. Now, mm. so, so what's going on here is I suspect when you are an elite cyclist, you are already so close to the capacity of physiology that you are far more sensitive to a specific type of training. And what you really are looking to do is maintain that maximal physiological potential. And that's best done by high volume, low intensity work and not overtraining. Because anytime you encroach on training quality and you overdo it, you probably cost yourself more than you gain. Yeah. Whereas what's happening in this Finnish study, I think, is that they are recreational, sedentary, rec active folk. Re sorry, mm. sedentary or recreationally active. They're, they're us. Right. Maybe even maybe even less. They're not. They're trend. not top end. Okay, right. And when you're not top end, anything helps. Mm. You know what I mean? Like mm. just just do something. Something will work. Mm. <laughs> Whereas when you're at the top end, maybe your margin for error—not error, but your margin to see benefit—is smaller because mm. you're already doing so much mm. that it's easy to tip off that peak, but it's not as easy to stay there. Whereas when you're only at fifty percent of that peak. Pretty much anything you do is going to lift you. Make, does that make sense? Like, yeah. So the, so that's where I think... Obviously, the study that needs to be done is using the same protocol, but on elites and seeing if there is that... Right, but what difference. do you do in an elite athlete to load the training on in a way that stimulates anything? Because they're already, you know, they're already doing well, so but, much. But there is, some, there is some stats there because you just mentioned that in that season study mm. that numbers go down over the season for elites. Yeah. So... <coughs> high intensity suggests that in elites, high intensity is actually proportionally bad for them, whereas yeah. for recreational and unfit athletes, yeah. any type of exercise so, is going to be beneficial. So a couple of questions that arise out of that, and I agree, is is the high intensity in the in the race season, the later season, the accumulation of high intensity, is that what's bad? Or is it that those minutes at high intensity could have rather been spent low, and so it's the drop in low rather than the addition of high that's bad. It's a subtly different thing, right? Yes. Is, in other words, is the, is the high-intensity training directly affecting durability, or is it the fact that it replaces low that compromises durability? That's, that's something to explore. And sure. one, one other point to remember with all this stuff, right, and that's why these observational studies where they, they do power profiles in hundreds of cyclists are cool, but they don't necessarily give you causal capabilities. Mm. Now, think about two teammates. One is Jonas Vinegar and the other one's Vote for Art in the Tour de France. Vote for Art's job is to get Vinegar to the bottom, maybe a third of the way up the last climb, and then to soft pedal in. <laughs> mm. Vinegar's job is to do as little as possible for the first 90% of the stage and then take over and finish as hard as he can. So they actually have quite different race tactical demands. If I now measure Vote for Art's power profiles and his 20-minute 
if it's after he's accumulated 3,000, 4,000 kilojoules, I'm measuring him at a time that he's actually not working as hard as he could because he's actually sat up yes. and he's now soft pedaling to the line as easy as he can, right? Whereas Vinegar, if I measured him in a fresher state, is probably not going as hard as he could because for the first 180K of a 190K stage, Vinegar is trying to save energy. So I'm only seeing Vinegar at a 10 out of 10 when he's fatigued. And I'm only seeing Vote von Art at a 10 out of 10 when he's fresh and vice versa. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's possible that I don't think that that undermines the concept of durability as it's been reported in these observational studies. But I think it probably exaggerates the scale because I suspect that Vinegar probably has a slightly higher fresh performance capability than he's shown because he's never had to show it because they never go 20-minute max except for after three hours of riding. Yeah. Whereas Vote for Night, his hardest efforts of the whole stage are often in the first hour because he's trying to get into the break yeah. to get ahead up on the road or it's the first climb that he's going to be pulling the peloton. So for Night's maximum efforts are fresh Vinegar's maximum efforts are fatigued. And so within fresh versus fatigue, Vinegar is loading his fatigue more. So maybe he looks more equal. Fanart's loading is fresh, relatively subjectively, perceptually higher. Does that make sense? Yes, kind of. But I mean, quite simply, Vinegar is able to use more of his absolute power because he's less fatigued than Art Van Art would be because he's protected. Yes, that's sort of. But what I'm saying is, remember what, what the research has shown is that your best guys in the GCs, for instance, the climbers, have a lower drop from fresh to fatigued. Right. That might be an artifact of the fact that they never really climb as hard as they could when they're fresh. They only really give yes. it their all when they are fatigued. And so let's say let's give some numbers. That Vin- fatigue is relative because for a guy like Vinegar, he's not absolutely he's been hiding in the bench for a long time. Right. So and his relative work to a white fine art. Is has much been less. much lower. Correct. So fresh, maybe vinegar let's say fatigue, we know vinegar fatigued is Six watts a kilo. Yeah. When he's been, when you look at his power output when he's fresh, it's also six watts a kilo. Yes. But he's never really had to go hard when he was fresh because he's in the Peloton and he's sheltered and so forth. If he had to go maximally, like if you said, here's a 20K stage of the Tour de France instead of 200, maybe he could do 6.4 for that first, for the 20 minutes. Does that make sense? But he never needed to. Whereas Fanat is often not going as hard as he could at the end of the stage because his job description doesn't require it. Yeah. His job is to go. So when you look at Fanat's fatigue performance, it's lower, not only because of fatigue, but also because of tactics. That's what I'm getting at is that it might be a part of the magnitude that we see might be an artifact of whether you are required to go hard fresh versus fatigued or free fatigued versus fresh. Yeah. So that's that's a something to just bear and, in and mind. I, and I guess what makes Pogacar interesting is that we, we see him often in you know not only monuments and single day races but in Tour de France making repeated attacks. Yeah. So there's always now, this question that he, is, he he has the ability to attack, recover, attack, recover mm. um, more than most. So visually he looks like he has the ability to recover from harder efforts better yeah. than anybody else. <coughs> yeah, and certainly that's what they've said is the difference between him and the other guys. I mean, yes. they, they own San Milan, the Inigo San Milan published that piece about some fancy mitochondria that I didn't really pay much attention to. Yes. But but that seems... That's Pogacar's coach. But, yes. that, but, but okay, so th- th- there's a couple things in play there. At an acute level, 
as in now I'm on the Poggio or I'm in the Tour of Flanders and every 5K I'm basically doing a cobbled climb and I'm going to hit the peloton hard every time. So I'm riding for seven minutes and then I'm going hard for one minute and I'm basically doing an interval session. Remember, that's an acute issue. So what that tells us is that Pogacar can go above his critical power by a lot because it's, a, I mean, those efforts up the Koppenberg yeah, yeah. and the Quaramont must be enormous. I mean, that's got to be huge watts, right? Mm. Way, way higher than his critical power that he could do for an hour. But then in the period in between those efforts, he does, he obviously recovers really well. Otherwise, you have two efforts in you, not six. <laughs> and other guys maybe have one or two. It's matches to burn, you know, that's the analogy that we He seems used. to have more matches to burn. That's what it seems like. Yes. But remember, that's an acute level. What this durability concept is saying is that his ability to do that after the 215th kilometer of a Flanders race is basically the same as he would have had you started that Flanders race right there. Yeah. That's the durability question. So that's, in a, that's almost like a chronic fatigue recovery ability, whereas the ability that you see on a short climb hitting the peloton four times within five minutes, that's a, an acute issue, which is probably related to, and possibly this is the mechanism is, when you go above critical power, remember, now you start to get that metabolite accumulation. You get the glycolysis and the um, formation of lactate, hydrogen, phosphates, depletion of your glycogen stores, etc. The ability to recover and restore that, let's call it balance, homeostasis, is probably what makes the difference between the best five cyclists in the world and everyone else. And I think they probably, I think Vinegar probably has the same kind of capacity. And so mm. did Armstrong. So did uh, mm. whoever was winning the Mercs and so forth. You know, yeah. so that clearly is a requirement of being the top cyclist: is that ability to very rapidly reverse the damage, quotes unquote, that high intensity exercise does. You know, it's W prime. Mm. How much of it can you access and how quickly do you recover it? That's your battery. You know, it's like I'm tapping so into my battery. So you're saying it is actually an equation. Yeah, you can way. work it out. Like you work out what, what that means. For every second you spend above your critical power, you are depleting your W prime battery. Yeah. And at some point when you deplete that W prime battery entirely, you pull off to the side of the road. That's what the domestiques are doing. Yes, they vote for night. Remember that scene when he dragged Vinegar away from uh, Pogaccio on the Gauter cam, mm-hmm. and then Last he year. kind of he kind of like treaded water. It was like a like a computer program restarting. And by the time Pogaccio caught up, he was on his wheel. Off he mm-hmm. went. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's a guy who's gone above critical power to the point of near depletion of the battery. Then he stops for a minute. Mm-hmm. The battery is restored. Off he goes. Mm-hmm. So do you think, so, I mean, based on all the discussions we're having now, it, it seems to me the concept of fatigue resistance is, is really the critical difference between a good and a bad performance in, in, yeah. in every respect, in any endurance sport, whether yeah. you're a triathlete doing the Ironman, whatever. So absolute power, the ability to ride for long periods of time at low intensity, that means nothing. The ability to be able to produce similar, as close to your maximum power in a fatigue state is the difference between a good and a bad performance yeah. in endurance sport. Yeah, it's kind of like <laughs> it's kind of like new 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 goods. I'm yes. new goods on the start line and this is my performance ability. Yeah. Now I'm damaged goods by virtue of riding 120k or 250k whatever. Mm. How much how damaged am I? That's what that's what it boils down to. Yeah. And all the evidence from this pro- power profiling and again with that fine print that when you do these observational studies, it doesn't always necessarily account for the tactical demands of your your job description, but they all seem to suggest that the difference between the very best and the good and the world tour and the pro tour 
and the elite of the elite and the winners versus I'm not going to call them losers because they're still mm. yeah that seems tier. to come down to your the your your relative ability to defend against physiological damage let's call it that yeah. right and it's interesting just going back to Pogaccio that stage remember when Roglic and Venegor last year took turns hitting him on the Galibia and then he counterattacked and they threw in a dozen attacks accelerations on the <laughs> lower slopes of the Col de Galibia that plus the hard effort that he then set pacing up the Galibia is probably what eventually undid him because that was finally where someone found where this guy starts to pay in durability terms that mm. effort would have been so hard plus remember he apparently had a Haribo emergency of not getting enough sugar in <laughs> um, and, and incidentally one of the one of the physiological mechanisms for the durability thing, particularly after three thousand, four thousand kilojoules, which is, again is four to five hours of hard work, is glycogen and glucose depletion, mm. liver glycogen and muscle glycogen. So, but if, sprint power is not necessarily dictated to by those things, is it? Well, it I mean, might. If, if you're Mark Cavendish and you're into the final kilometer of a stage, yeah. does it matter how much glycogen's in your muscle at that yeah, point? Yeah, it could do because there's a central signal, remember? Mm. There's a central signal and as we deplete glycogen and particularly liver glucose that is res responsible for getting the energy to the brain, that central drive is down. And so mm. your ability to access power for one minute and particularly for that 15 seconds that really makes or breaks your sprint success might be a compromised by central factors, not just peripherals. Remember, that's going back to last week. So if you need to refresh, listen to last week. There's a central component as in how much is my brain able to put out to my muscles mm. to activate them and the peripheral component happening at the level of the muscle. So you're right, the, the muscle doesn't need liver glycogen and glucose for that 15 seconds, but it sure needed it to get there. And if you get there, even 5% centrally compromised, that's the difference, right? Mm. And so, yeah, so all, all those things are making a difference. So in, in the case of Pagacha, I think they exposed, because when he did that last climb on, on called the Glandon, I think it was, mm. and I, I dare say the same thing happened on Hartercam, except without the fireworks before. It was just a hard day at the end of a hard tour. He's riding at 5.6 watts a kilo. That's well below what he normally would be capable of. And so they've exposed a durability failure effectively mm. through that teamwork. And so and it'll be, that's why it's interesting to see what he does this year. Does he learn to, because he, he, he might have spent five and a half thousand kilojoules <laughs> getting to that point where he's dropped by vinegar. Next year, if he spends four and a half thousand, he's not dropped this yeah. year. You know what I mean? So yeah. manage yourself for the first four hours in order to be ready to go. It's and it's always a nice, uh, an interesting concept to compare the sprinters of a stage race, like the Cavendishes mm. and the Kittles of this world and that sort of that sort of guys, and compare them to the track cyclists and say, well, you know, these these uh, you know these Tour de France sprinters are really really fast. Well, compared to the sprinters on the track, they're absolutely nowhere in terms of the power they produce. But they're very good. They have to have some element of durability to exactly. get to the sprint. But they wouldn't beat a track sprinter in a track sprint because they are not necessarily yeah. designed for that. Exactly. And if yeah. they ever found themselves in a race with a track sprinter, you know what they're going to yes. do. Although they're Cavendish has done both. Yeah. He started and then off. some of them did. I mean, like yeah. they, and they do. There's, there's quite a good crossover. It wasn't Greipel, yes. a really good track yeah. guy as well, the old yeah. Quadzilla. Yeah. So, for example, again, referring back to that study, the top 10% of cyclists in the World Tour 
can produce over 20 watts a kilogram for five seconds and 19 for 10 seconds and 14 for 30 seconds. Wow. The, to get into the peloton, you need 11 for 20 seconds per kilogram. And so that's, for me, that's a thousand for, for uh, 30 seconds, not, mm. past, not happening ever. <laughs> now, the point is that a, a, an elite track cyclist is at fresh state better than that. But, yeah. but they're doing it at the end of a Milan-San Remo or a 200K stage in the Tour de France. Okay, the Champs-Élysées stage is pretty soft pedaling until the last sort of 48K. But, mm. but you're right, that's the difference. And it's not, remember, it's not just durability in that instance because for Cavendish to respond to the attacks, to get over some of the smaller climbs, yeah. means that he must also have a pretty good 10, 20, 30-minute power output capabilities. That's what the track cyclist doesn't have. So, mm. again, it's acute. It's what do I do in that moment, like with Pogaccia and the repeated attacks. And it's the chronic, which we'll use to refer to the durability. Like, mm. can I access this in hour number six as much as I did in minute number six? Yeah. That's, the, that's the key for any, any performance. And that's why you can go out and measure this yourself. Like, there's two ways to do this. One is like that finished paper. Mm. Go out and measure. You'd have to find a relatively flat route that's not confounded by this hill, that hill, long downhills where you sit up and you don't pedal, then a steep uphill where you mm. do 380 watts instead of your 200, whatever. You want a 2% rise, yeah. something like that. You know? Yeah, mm. so you'd want it to be an effort that you can manage and you can say, right, I'm going to ride 150 watts for two hours and I'm going to see how much does my heart rate lift today, now at the end, where, where is it now compared to the beginning? That's a physiological drift, mm. which is a marker of your durability. Mm. Over time, as you get fitter, that comes down. It should. That's what we've discovered training will do mm. the other way to do it is to try and look at your performance you know go and find i think the best distance is between 10 and 15 minutes you know so that's a 5k climb steady 5k and hammer it give it a good go and that's going to be your 12 minute max power mm. then go and do that climb at the back end of a 200 a two two hour ride let's say an elite guy needs longer you know they're so so conditioned that to induce durability declines or let's call them physiological damage we used that term a few minutes back they need three hours fairly hard but then go and repeat the same climb in a fatigued state compared to not fatigued and see what you look like you know maybe you do 300 watts for those 12 minutes and then when you're fatigued you do 250 watts that's 50 on 300 that's your drop that's your mm. percentage decline mm. the goal should be to make that as small as possible. Mm. So you can mm. apply this stuff quite easily. There's a paper, by the way, Peter Leo, it's one of the researchers who's done a lot of this. I've never heard of this journal. It's called the German Journal of Exercise and Sport Research. And what they did is basically a 12 minute test, either fresh or after 150 minutes, so two and a half hours of fatiguing exercise. One of those fatigue bouts was a constant intensity, 150 minutes, two and a half hours at steady pace. The other one after the after the fatiguing part of the test. No, that is the fatiguing okay, part. That is the fatiguing. So okay, right. it's a 12, 12 minute test fresh. That's right. your baseline. That's my twelve minute okay. max capacity. Right. That's my ceiling, right? Now remember the durability the control, question right? is how far below the ceiling am I going to be after fatigue? Two fatigue protocols. One of them is two and a half hours of pretty constant intensity riding, mm -hmm. and then do the twelve minutes again. The other one is two and a half hours of intermittent riding designed to simulate what it would be like in a breakaway. So there are periods of a few minutes at like 350 watts. There are periods of a few minutes at 120 watts. So far slow, far slow for like two and a half hours. 
Want to guess? Well, I guess that the 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 um, second protocol is going to make the rider more fatigued, and therefore their numbers are going to be lower. Yeah. This time you nailed it. So in this one, <laughs> the fresh the fresh performance three hundred and seventy seven watts drops to three hundred and sixty eight. Small. It's not, I mean, that's, not that big, yeah. No, that's like a, remember these are well conditioned guys. That's nine watts as sure. a consequence of constant workload, two and a half hours. And the other one, fresh three hundred and eighty two drops to three thirty. That's fifty two watts. Wow. So that's the difference between between a race simulator. So again, if you want to go try this, maybe don't go and do your five minute, your five K, your fifteen minute hill, whatever it is. Don't go out and do two hours of easy riding. Go out and do two hours of fast, mm. slow, fast, slow, attack. Ride with your mates. That intensity hurts. Yeah, that intensity. The Even, and in this instance, the two and a half hours high intensity overall was a bit more work and it involved a bit more time in higher parts. So obviously, it's going to compromise you more. So again, yeah. it might be that this is an exaggerated finding. <laughs> but I do think any time you spend above your critical power, the costly exercise intensities is going to, you pay it back later and that's basically the other durability analogy is it's it's like finance you know it's mm. taking out loans mm. and you pay them back and the elite athletes just don't seem to do it as much maybe yeah. because they don't need the loans in the first place you know because if you're Pogaccio riding at six watts a kilo is not hurting you anything like it's hurting I was going to say Gordu, but he's actually pretty good but but it's like it's hurting your domestiques yeah they're paying big time for what you're I wouldn't say comfortable at, but confident at. Yeah. So you don't need the loan. And then later on, as large a loan, and then later on when it's time to pay back the loan, the interest payments aren't so high. No. <laughs> that's, the, that's, the, that's the point, right? So, yeah. yeah, that's what durability is. Is you elite, The best cyclists have zero interest loans. <laughs> yeah. The average guys and the inferior ones, they pay heavily for their loans. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I know what it feels like. Professor Rostaka, thanks very much for your insights. Uh, fascinating just to discuss some of the practicalities of that. And we hope that you've enjoyed our little two-part series on fatigue and uh, not only found it interesting, but maybe applying it to the training that you're doing if you're out there doing endurance sport of any kind. Um, but uh, our next subject uh, coming up in the next couple of weeks, we're going to let you know about, uh, about that a bit uh, closer to the time. But we'll be back next week. But for now, it's goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.